everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker. We've got another fantastic interview for you today. We're going to be talking once again with Jeffrey Ritter. He was on the show a few weeks back, and he quite literally wrote the book on digital trust. And the topic I was dying to talk to him about last time he was here, and we just didn't have time, uh, brought him back, and we're going to talk about fake news. We're going to talk about how you determine for yourself what's fake, what's not, how you can Pick your news sources uh, appropriately. We'll talk about advertising and all the other different kind of ways that people are trying to vie for your attention. And according to Jeffrey, trying to outright deceive you. Uh, so another interesting talk with Jeffrey. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to go through a little bit of weekly news. We've had uh, plenty of stuff to cover. A couple of interesting stories I wanted to pass along before we get to our, our interview. Coming up a little bit later in the show, I will tell you how to win a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. All you got to do is send me your interesting stories about backups. More on that a little bit later. So Google has announced that it has some way, and it's not being clear on what that way is, it's claiming that it can basically match your offline purchases with your online activity. Uh, this is often referred to as the holy grail in advertising because when you're on the web and you're surfing around the web and you, you, know, you see an ad and you click on that ad and you go buy something, that's very straightforward. That ad, they're going to say that ad influenced you to go buy that product and therefore that ad was worth money. We'll keep doing more ads like that. Uh, of course, it's gotten even more more tricky than that. You might look at an ad on one website, and then you go into some completely different website, come back a day later, buy that product later, or buy a similar product. They've still tracked you enough to know that they can say, you know what, I think that ad influenced that person, even though you might not have directly clicked on it. So the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, one of the, one of the great groups out there is doing work to protect you as a consumer, filed a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, that, quote, alleges that Google is using credit card data to track whether online ads lead to in-store purchases without providing an easy opt-out or clear information about how the system works. The complaint specifically calls out new advertising program Google unveiled in May that reportedly relies on billions of credit card records, which are matched to data on what ads people click on when they logged into Google services, unquote. Uh, and that was from Slate Magazine. So, the tracking is just getting crazier, folks. It's not enough that they track you online and figure out what you're doing and selling that information to others. Now they're actually working with credit card companies to try to link up the things that you do online with things you do offline. So just bringing that to your attention, this is just stuff we need to be aware of. And all this really comes back to for me is that we need to be pressuring our, our, our representatives in Congress and our representatives around the planet um, they're doing a much better job of this in the EU, by the way, um, to protect your privacy and that you should be owning your data. And it, if nothing else, you should have the transparency to know how that data is being used about you and have some control and say over what is being done. And one last quick story before we get to our wonderful interview with Jeffrey Ritter. Uh, two senators in a bipartisan fashion, thank goodness, are submitting a new bill that will help to secure the Internet of Things. That's IoT. That's all these devices in your house now, your toaster, your fridge, your thermostat, your light bulbs that are now being connected to the Internet so you can control them with the, with an app on your phone. Uh, unfortunately, because these devices need to be so cheap, they really kind of skimp on security. And once you get these devices in your home and they're connected to your Wi-Fi network, that becomes the weakest link. If I'm a hacker and I'm somewhere near your house, I, maybe not even near your house, actually. Sometimes you can just do this over the Internet, which means I could do it from anywhere on the planet. Uh, if these devices have horrible security and 
they are trying to talk with the internet, well, that sometimes will allow the internet to come on in. And if they can compromise this device, then all of a sudden they've got a beachhead. They've got something within your network, your home network that is compromised. And then, you know, all your, all the protections that are built into your router that kind of protect you from the internet are all out the window. Cause now you've got something on the inside. It's like, there's, there's a mole in your house, uh, a mole in your organization <laughs> within your network. Uh, that can get up to all sorts of no good. So anyway, this bill, and let me just give you a quick quote here from Reuters. They explain it pretty well. Quote, uh, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators on Tuesday plans to introduce legislation seeking to address vulnerabilities in computing devices embedded in everyday objects known in the tech industry as the Internet of Things, which experts have long warned pose a threat to global cybersecurity. The new bill would require vendors that provide Internet-connected equipment to the U.S. government to ensure their products are patchable and conform to industry security standards. It would also prohibit vendors from selling, from supplying devices that have unchangeable passwords or, or possess known security vulnerabilities. Republicans Cory Gardner and Steve Daines and Democrats Mark Warner and Ron Wyden are sponsoring the legislation, which was drafted, which was drafted with input from technology experts at the Atlantic Council and Harvard University, unquote. Uh, anyway, this is really good news. Keep an eye on this. As this uh, bill comes up for consideration, make sure you're telling your representatives that you support this bill. Um, this is really good. It, basically what they're doing, instead of outright outlawing these sorts of things, what they're basically saying, they're starting with the government's buying power. And they're saying, we as the government will not buy products from you unless it meets these standards. And hopefully what that means is because these companies want to sell to the government, they will upgrade their standards, and then that will help all of us. So if we're really lucky, what will come out of this is some sort of a standard seal of approval sort of a thing, like it meets these specifications, uh, and they'll, all of our products will start getting stamped with that, and we'll be as uh, able to, as consumers to make informed choices. And that's our News of the Week, and so let's dive into our interview about fake news with Jeffrey Ritter, who wrote the book on digital trust. All right, we are back with Jeffrey Ritter. He uh, was with us once before talking about digital trust. He's a lawyer, a researcher, a business executive, and a public speaker at one point at various points in your life. And he's the author of a book called Achieving Digital Trust, uh, which we discussed in a previous interview. So welcome back. Thank you. Now, I'd like to take your digital, your concept of digital trust and see if we can use your techniques to be better consumers and better citizens. Uh, something I preach a lot about in this, uh, on this show. So I kind of feel like this is a television show. There's a bucket <laughs> of slime over my head if I give you the wrong answer. Uh, yeah, so, or your electric, your, your, your chair will be zapped. Ouch. Um, <laughs> oh, you were just testing. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'll turn it down. Uh, so we're, okay, so we're constantly bombarded with news, re news reports, Facebook posts, public speeches, advertising, uh, even late night TV shows that all want to persuade us, right? They vote for this person over that person, buy this product instead of this product. Uh, believe me, don't believe them. Uh, while this has always been true to some extent, it seems like today it's much fiercer competition for our trust. Uh, and frankly, it seems like they're fighting dirty. <laughs> do you, what, do you agree? Um, I do. Uh, but I almost think that you start off on the wrong foot by saying that they're fighting, uh, to persuade us. No, they're fighting to deceive us. <laughs> um, the, the reality is from the very first days of marketing on products, the goal was to convince you to make an affirmative decision to buy the product or the service with the least possible information. <laughs> and so pretty colors were put on boxes, brand names were developed, uh, slogans were conceived, 
not to tell us anything about the product, not to give us a full disclosure of the contents of the of the cereal box that was sealed with glue. Right. And so we don't know whether they were rat turds or plump juicy raisins. But boy, it was from that brand name manufacturer with a really cute tiger on the front. And so why not get it? <laughs> right. That's where marketing has tended to take us. And it's almost like there has been a development of an unwillingness to actually share the information with us that allows us to make an informed, deliberate decision about the quality of what we're choosing to purchase or the quality of the candidate on which we want to vote. Uh, rather than hearing about the qualities of the candidate, as we know, we're being told much more about the other person than we are about the candidate we actually think we like. So, so I think that we have to look at the, the nature of all that communication as maybe an act of deception uh, rather than an act of persuasion. Yeah, I I would certainly agree with that. It changes the context. So we've, you know, that's always been snake oil salesmen. Since since the dawn of commerce, there's been somebody who's trying to convince us to buy something that may or not be, may or not be what they say it is. But it seems like in today's digital world, it's it's different. We're in Amazon now. We do have, you know, I guess we have reviews um, that we have like Yelp or actually with built into the system now. But those can be gamed as well. So how how does that change? How does the whole digital commerce market change uh, compared to what we've been used to in the past. I mean, I guess we kind of had catalogs where before you still kind of had to evaluate something based on a picture and prose. But, uh, you know, now with Amazon and all these other places, how do we how do we decide how to trust something in the digital age when we've got reviews that may be doctored or there could be, you know, there's all these stories about people going through that are paid to write bad reviews for their competitors and things like that. Well, the, those are illustrations of deception, right? And what we're also seeing, though, and I'd be quick to point out, is, is enormous investments being made in, in fighting back. One of the key things is leveraging the community's opinion. So when we see five stars beside a product seller on eBay, and it's supported by 14,000 satisfied customers, there's something there that never existed 10 years ago, 12 years ago, for sure terms of a consensus-based evaluation where a significant number of people are making calculations as to whether this was an engaging experience, positive experience, and then they're sharing that experience. And the, the retailer or the aggregator like an Amazon is publishing those opinions. And that changes a great deal from the efforts of the bad actor to manipulate the deception. The other thing you're seeing is again, be quick to point out, are the number of controls that are being designed to fight back against that. So if I'm looking at a review of a book on Amazon, it will it will now say this is a verified purchaser. Right. Meaning the reviewer is coming from someone who did, in fact, engage in a commercial transaction to buy the product or service. Um, that's a big change. Uh, but if we look at the aggregate of that information plus the controls, it really is only possible because of digital. Uh, I couldn't stand outside a drugstore in 1985 and ask 15 customers coming in whether, <laughs> whether Mr. Murphy was a good pharmacist. Right. Uh, now I can type in Murphy Pharmacist Evaluation and find three different websites that are aggregating people's opinions of that pharmacist and how good Dr. Murphy is at, at making sure that I don't have contraindicatory drugs on a particular prescription. This has changed. So I think that the key thing on digital is... Uh, is community and transparency and control, uh, the quality control to make sure that's good data. 
All right, so now for the fun part. So, and this is this was a subject when I had you on the first time that I was dying to get into, and I knew we didn't have time, so I'm glad to have you back. My pleasure. In the last year or so, uh, we've been told over and over that so much of what we see is, quote-unquote, fake news. Uh, the media, the so-called fourth estate, is supposed to be in the business of presenting us with facts, um, important information that allows us to make informed decisions. Uh, but in recent years, uh, it really seems to me that it's more infotainment than it is news. It certainly, somewhere along the line where news went from being a loss leader to being uh, – now it's become ad-driven. It's become all about bringing in the ad dollars and bringing in eyeballs to your show, which has led to if it you know if it bleeds, it leads. And you know I think it's just gone downhill since then. Um, Okay, so fake news. How how do we as as consumers of this information? How do we figure out what news organizations that we can trust? How do we decide if any particular story or article is true? How, how do I? I don't have time to research it all. So what do I do? For me, as someone who tries to think well about digital trust, about trust itself, uh, I could not be more pleased that the phrase fake news has entered our vocabulary hmm. because it alerts us as citizens to the reality that a lot of that information that we receive hasn't changed from the 18th century. Uh, and the first newspapers in the United States were often filled with inflammatory, uh, pugilistic uh, prose that was rarely tied to anything actually factual mm. in, a, in the way that we think of facts. Um, fake news as a, as a, as a hook has alerted us to the fact we really do need to be evaluating more aggressively the information and the sources of the information so that we can make those decisions. Uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, when it was Walter Cronkite et al., um, you know, there was only a few sources. They were eminently credible because they were older and they were male and <laughs> they were consumed, you know, presumed by those, you know, nice deep voices they had to have gravitas that must be true. But any news organization has an inherent challenge not to decide what they will publish, but what they will not publish. Sure. The information record of an event, of a story, so to speak, is far larger than anyone will actually publish. And so inherently, we are relying as consumers on their editorial decision process. Yes. Right. How does that work? Um, what? How do we know what their editorial criteria are? We don't. And uh, they know that we don't. And so that's vacuum of knowledge is where we're seeing the hazards of fake news drift into reality. Is it what the authors of non-authentic information are doing is they recognize the consumer does not have the tools in place to evaluate the information. And so they are, again, achieving deception by not being forthcoming about what their sources are, how they developed it, what their editorial guidelines are. A good example that is recently uh, CNN had to withdraw a story that uh, they concluded after it was initially uh, uh, released was, was erroneous. What was really cool was what they did. They told us why they screwed up. They said that we needed to have at least two independent sources, that we went to a public presentation of the information with only one source. We violated our rules, and we have imposed sanctions on the people that did so. 
In many ways, that actually enriched all of our confidence in CNN because they were being forthcoming about those criteria. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, but I, I think you you mentioned that it's, some of these things are active, actively attempts to deceive us. But you also mentioned deciding what we do and what we don't publish. And I th- think as gatekeepers of information, there's also power in what you tell and what you don't tell, even if it even if both of them are true. Deciding which stories to, to actually air and which ones to not air, which which stories to print, which ones to not, controls what information you allow your your readers to hear. It may be it, it, both all these stories may be true, but you're deciding which ones to get filtered out and which ones you actually present. And we're going to take just a short break here, and then we'll be back to continue our wonderful interview with Jeffrey Ritter. I want to remind you to stay tuned toward the end of the show. I got it my usual tip of the week, and I will be telling you how to win a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Back in just a sec. We're a new breed of talk radio with a new breed of host and shows to entertain and inform you. It's America Out Loud Talk Radio. Shows that impact your health, honor our heroes, political talk. Shows that inspire you to live a truly authentic life. You can hear your favorite shows on networks like iHeartRadio or AHA Radio. Or just download our free apps on both Android and Apple. But we are proud to have you as one of our growing family of listeners. We are the vision of the voices, AmericaOutloud.com. Now, without a doubt, my friends, this is a game changer. It was for me, and it can be for you. I want to give you an exclusive offer today for our friends of America Out Loud. We appreciate you, and we want to show it right now with our complimentary gift. You can try this today free with our Healthy Cell Pro 7-Day Sample. Now, when I say free, I mean it is 100% free. Free shipping, no risk, no obligation, no credit card required. It's a complimentary gift from us to you. Now, Healthy Cell, it's, I'll tell you what, 90-plus nutrients are infused into every cell of your body. This product has been incredible for me personally, and I think it can be for you as well. So I want you to try it. It'll boost your energy, you'll sleep better at night, sharpens your focus, you'll feel healthier, and hopefully we'll all live longer in a beautiful, prosperous life I always talk about with you on the show. Well, I'll tell you what, you can go to the front page of AmericaOutloud.com and just click the large banner ad, and we'll have that complimentary gift right off to you. Deciding which stories to to actually air and which ones to not air, which which stories to print, which ones to not controls what information you allow your your readers to hear. It may be, it, it, both, all these stories may be true, but you're deciding which ones to get filtered out and which ones you actually present. Well, I think that's the, that's where the phrase and the business practices of fake news become so alarming because those people that are authoring and publishing information that is clearly fictional, right, and disguising it as fact are an entirely different breed than someone that's sitting on a lot of facts and selectively choosing which one of those to present. Um, in the former case, with the people that are authoring fake news, they're actually very sophisticated and, and to be admired uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a sort of odd way because they know what their audience will treat as fact. Mm-hmm. And they also know where the audience will accept false information as fact and they weave on that they, they build upon that they leverage it to the point that as an extreme example 
someone can state that there's a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. where they're trafficking children. Right. And this is by a former president's wife and a former U.S. senator and her chief of staff. And people are believing this. I mean, this is not uh, this is not responsible journalism in any sense. And there was no underlying fact that supported that. And so where I think there's an important distinction to be made is uh, legitimate, verified people in the business of news, finding the truth and presenting it, often have more information than they need and that they can publish. They also have more information that they can't uh, publish because it doesn't rise to their standards of quality control for its truthfulness, for its accuracy. That's a very different situation than people that are out there manipulating our instinct to be deceived. How do we, uh, how can we develop the sense over time? We talked in a previous show about rating systems, uh, Amazon and Yelp and Rate My Professor and, and whatever, where there, where people are, are, take the time for whatever reason to to, to provide their input in, out into the ether so that they can be aggregated and collected and, and then the next person who comes along can see that. We don't really have that with news. <laughs> why why is that? Is it, it, well, in fact, one of the things that's happening is that, and this is where Facebook has received so much criticism, is that aggregators such as Facebook of community and of information are applying techniques and algorithms to make those filters that we don't know what they are. And we don't know how they're making those choices, and they've gotten in trouble for that. Now, while you're not, you know, the conservative side has argued that the conservative news isn't getting fair treatment, the liberals have argued the other side of that. Um, where I think it's really interesting, though, is to switch your, your focus not to the news, but to the classrooms of America. Mm. What's really been interesting to me is how some teachers, so concerned about the possible reliance of their students on fake news at the dining room table, in part because their parents mm. are victims of deception. And But from parents, whatever is said is viewed as truth by children. So how do I, as a teacher, begin to be responsive to the concerns you've expressed on? How do I know the difference between real news and something that's fake news? What's fascinating to me is that they're beginning to teach criteria for how to determine whether to trust the source. Hmm. Um, What do you know about their editorial policy? What do you know about the staff experience of their their writers? Uh, What do you know about other stories they've they've written? Uh, Is this the type of story that the major uh, press has also covered, like Associated Press and UPI and and, uh, New York Times and even a conservative paper like the Washington Times? Um, you know, are they really covering this story or is this the only place there the story is showing up? That classroom and interaction is actually teaching children skill sets and ways of applying new tools that are never before been tested, right? Yeah, back in my day, we would call that critical thinking. Uh, exactly. Now it's critical thinking applied to facts, which now, if we go back to what you call critical thinking, we realize it's the same building blocks that we talked about in the earlier podcast about trust. That trust is based on rules that require information and where we also have to decide whether we can trust the sources. So now when we're looking at fake news, uh, the same problems arise. Uh, it's, you know, where is it coming from? What are my rules for what I'm going to consider news? 
and how reliable are they proving to be? Those are good questions, and I'm actually kind of excited that that critical thinking is being introduced as a filtering process for information coming across the web. Yeah, and I, as we were talking, I, I, I just realized that there really are, there actually are some some organizations that are trying to do this. PolitiFact is probably the most popular one. Um, I would think that'd be kind of fascinating to you and, and your alignment to work with the digital, digital trust. Where does where does PolitiFact fit in? Do you think, are they following your tools and your rules, do you think? Could, could they benefit from, from the processes you've outlined? Um, I think they do in part. Uh, it was actually kind of fun uh, a few months ago uh, I'm one of these people that does talk to who sits beside me on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the CEO of a nonprofit uh, journalism organization out of New York. And I'm going to be going up there later this summer to train his staff on trust. And not only how to, how to evaluate the trustworthiness of the sources, but also how to enrich the trustworthiness of their product around these very same principles. That's fantastic. And I told him that for the cost of the airfare, I'd do it for free because we need trusted news. Good for you. So that's where we're headed. Um, I think the one thing that you, you haven't asked about the jump into though, uh, you know, a lot of the, as you've described to me, a lot of your uh, audience are also small businesses. Um, imagine the scenario in business. If you make an important decision and find out that you actually relied on fake news inside the company. Somebody falsified a sales report. Somebody failed to generate the necessary confirmation of an order. Uh, in other words, we make decisions on information in all contexts of life. And where uh, I've found a surprising amount of traction is with CEOs who are trying to dis dis off the, dismiss this off to the side and say it doesn't really have relevance to me until I share with them the possible headline of CEO indicted for business fraud. <laughs> and they say, wait a minute, what do you mean? I said, well, you made this decision and there was fraudulent information that someone had intentionally manipulated to provoke that decision inside your company and you didn't ask enough questions to verify that it was true. And now you know, everyone's sitting up. They don't need the back on their chairs because right. they, are, they are engaged. Right. Um, and we're seeing a shift because over in uh, Europe, the new rules on privacy are yeah. for the first time placing executives in the line of criminal prosecution for oh, wow. failing to maintain the rules of privacy, which are, in effect, rules for securing the trust of the data subject in the collection and use of the information about them. So it's really interesting that we're now moving into a, a landscape where this question of relying on information and being responsible or assuring its accuracy are beginning to have very real consequences. Uh, through much of my career, when I would talk to a senior executive about important decisions uh, that in my mind might not be the best choice, they'd say, but will I go to jail for it, Jeffrey? <laughs> and I'd say, well, boss, no, you won't. All right, then I'm going to make this decision. Now, for the first time in England, in Europe, right, if you fail to comply with the privacy laws, the answer is very different. Well, sir, you may actually go to jail. Now they're listening. Yeah, and I'll I, bet. And I think that everything we're talking about is going to have very real implications in any business, but particularly small businesses where a, a decision poorly grounded on fake news has even more significant consequences in a small business. The, error, the, the margin for error is so much less. 
Yeah. They need to make sure the facts are there. So back to the some some of the poli- politics angle for this, the political aspects of this. As a as a voter, as a citizen, we're bombarded with with sound bites constantly. Uh, and how I don't have time to go and check the veracity of all these statements. They're they're, they're clips from politicians. Um, typically, the worst the worst possible one is political ads. Those are the most vile things I've ever seen, and I don't know how we we. We allow these things to even occur or support them as, as a citizenry because they're just chock full of horrible, horrible statements that are, are almost always so that took some little nugget and twisted the hell out of it to make it sound completely wrong. Right. So as I'm listening to these political ads or I'm hearing these sound bites, how can I possibly keep up with this as a citizen? How, how do I possibly judge and figure out for myself which of these things are true and which things are BS? In, in my mind, and perhaps in practical daily life, um, the, the answer is to be selective in the sources. Mm. Um, if I'm watching, you know, normal consumer media, you know, public health, you know, just television signals and stuff like that, um, that's hard because commercial TVs are filled with commercials. Commercials themselves, even the political ones, again, are more acts of deception than they are acts of building trust. Um, if you're choosing that option, then you simply have to conclude whether or not you're going to trust any of that content. Uh, we moved to uh, North Carolina two years ago and made the very conscious decision to not have commercial television in the house. Mm. Uh, we've just find that we got so distracted both by product commercials and political commercials that the entertainment value of the remaining content just was displaced. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most of us uh, have time for one or two sources of news that we trust. And I think that it's easier to get through life if we apply our, our, our rules to what sources will we trust and then always have one other one out there to, to kind of cross-check it against. I, I pretty much myself have three sources of news and I don't think I get it to my first cup of coffee before I've at least hit two of them to look at the headlines to see what happened while I was sleeping. But pretty much surprising how close their headlines are. And uh, and from there I go. Doesn't it seem like so many of our news organizations now, maybe not newspapers so much, which unfortunately are are dying out in large large portion, are getting, being so consolidated um, as to be just a few left that are really doing true investigative journalism. But from from a TV perspective, certainly... And and on the web, it's so tribal. There's we've we've separated ourselves into into belief systems and bins, and we tend to gravitate and stay in that bubble of which we're most comfortable, as opposed to trying to find something that is either more general, or, or God forbid, going and trying to listen to something that we from a news source that we don't believe. And let's say we're let's say we're liberals and actually tuning into Fox News and you know trying to listen to that and try to get the other perspective. What do you? Is that a is that a new thing? That seems like a new thing to me. What what is your take on on how that's become more normal now that we've we've self segregated ourselves uh, and and choosing our sources th- that way? I, I disagree. I don't think that's a a, a new uh, behavioral practice. Um, I, our species is inherently tribal. Mm. Um, it would be based on who had the better cave, uh, who had better access to the stream. Um, and uh, at least in the family into which I'm married, 
the tribal uh, passion for the Red Sox is such that <laughs> I would never be allowed to mention the name of another professional baseball team if I was going to sustain the marriage. It, it was just that <laughs> tribe. And, and for me, who grew up in central Ohio and went to the Ohio State University, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you know, I am a part of the Ohio State University Buckeye tribe. Yeah. And, you know, that's there. And it, it's what we do to avoid uh, uh, murdering people in coliseums <laughs> as, this, as a, you know, we, we substitute our tribal passions and, and our connections. I think what the digital age has done is isolated the tribes from one another. Mm. Um, yesterday, I was watching a video of uh, Bill Clinton and uh, uh, George Bush the second. Uh, talking on a, on a panel with each other about their jobs. And one of the questions is, how did you guys become friends? Uh, having said such strong and bitter things yeah. in different campaigns about one another. And Bill Clinton made a very astute observation. He said, I grew up in an age when we didn't have Twitter and we didn't have, and that was his word, <laughs> uh, and we didn't have Facebook. We actually had to sit down and talk to people. Yeah, I was 10 years old before we had a television in our home. And we talked. And even though George and I have diversely opposite posing views on many political issues, we realized we are both compassionate human beings that care a great deal. And that was, I think, the division. It's not that we exist in tribes. It's that we're not interacting with the different tribes. Yeah. And if you look at the biggest global problems we have, that segregation of identity has been occurring at all sorts of levels whether it's based on color, whether it's based on gender, whether it's based on sexual preference, or whether it's based on political opinion. Oddly, instead of bringing us together and allowing us to have better dialogue, the Internet is actually enabling a segregation of views and a segregation of tribes, which is making the globalization of our species more difficult to achieve. Is that, it's, yeah. It's kind of an interesting perspective I hadn't thought about, but... Uh, you know, my work from the very beginning with the United Nations was driven by a passion for believing that if we do business with one another and we connect with one another, it's less likely we will do war against one another. And yet somehow the, maybe it's the, the flood of information, but the segregation of the tribes is an unexpected development that was not what we thought would be happening 25 years ago. Well, and I, the other thing that I see with digital communications today, and especially with things like Facebook and Twitter and all the massive amounts of data mining that, that is being done on us uh, as we go through our quote-unquote free services on the web and get tracked and all of our information compiled into these dossiers is that, for instance, last year in the 2016 election, the the Russians were able to target certain audiences with fake news articles in, in Facebook uh, and be very effective with that. Um because, like you said, they've already kind of self-segregated. These, these, these types of articles, they knew what buttons to push. They knew what would go, quote-unquote, viral. Right? Right. They, they, they were able to play to these audiences and pick their audiences carefully because of the way we've kind of segregated our digital media and broken into these tribes. Um, so from your perspective as someone who's written a book on digital trust, what can we do? Is there anything institutionally? Is there, is there anything um, Facebook can do? Because I know that you are, you mentioned this as well, that they're they're trying to implement algorithms to, 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 to root these sorts of things out or at least call attention to them. Is, is there something that we can do to, to block these things or at least make them more transparent? Well, 
Um, I, there is, but neither blocking blocking is not the answer. Right. Um, transparency is the answer. Yeah. Uh, and building the information in a way that it is accessible and that we can consume it as part of the information we're consuming. So a newspaper that tells you these are our editors and these are editorial boards and these are our policies is introducing a level of transparency that allows you to make the decisions about whether or not you trust that newspaper as a source. The newspaper with a glossy headline that doesn't really tell you who's behind it um, is a different kind of situation, but that's a difference in transparency. Um, blocking only becomes a viable strategy when there is consensus that the behavior is unacceptable. Um, for example, and, and what's interesting is the what's interesting is the economic drivers in that decision. Um, for example, everyone is somebody's commercial customer. No matter how nefarious the bad actor is, the only way they get to the internet is through somebody's commercial service. Mm -hmm. And we could very easily build a registry of users and a registry of filters at the network level that would effectively identify and block people that post information proven to be untrue. If they are authoring fake news, we have a way of verifying that by semantic analysis, by validation from the story from other sources, we can easily block them as a commercial matter. But there's no economic incentive to do so because the more customers there are, the more authors of, of information there are, the better those institutional infrastructure components are at being profitable. Another example that has always intrigued me is the notion of the social discomfort about pornography. Mm -hmm. um, here's a body of content that is certainly usually fake. It's certainly unacceptable <laughs> to a lot of people. Uh, and yet it's, it's you know, a huge global industry. Uh, how do you stop it? By saying to the three major credit card companies in the world, you will not process payment transactions involving this content. And the entire industry would collapse in a matter of hours. Mm. Uh, and the same thing would be true if you said to Hyatt, Hilton, and Marriott, you will not offer nor take payment for pornographic content. Turns out that, uh, I forget the numbers, but it's somewhere in the range of 25 to 30% of the yeah. profit out of those hotels comes from yes. people buying those films. Yes. So we've got the opportunity to introduce blocking, uh, but it has to be made, done with an economic awareness. And those people that profit from the subscriptions, the accounts, the content of the bad actors you know, that are writing fake news, they have to get on board with that. And until they do, uh, you're then going to see nation state intervention uh, to say, well, now you can't operate as an Internet unless you have these these controls. And that's what we're beginning to see, certainly in China. Uh, as a de facto state, we're beginning to see that creep into Europe in terms of some of those things they're doing. Because, in fact, there's, there's been failure by the private sector to actually introduce those kind of blocking controls. Yeah, even as I said it, I realized that blocking is not uh, blocking is not the term I, I meant to use, even though that is being something that's it's been attempted. It's not a bad one to use. It's, it, it, it has been attempted. There are people that are talking about it, uh, but it's, it's clearly for the average consumer, uh, you know, it, 
the ability to try to block our browsers from accessing certain content so that our kids don't see it is so difficult today that it's almost out of out of out of reach. We just can't really block all that stuff. Right. And, but you know, certainly, obviously, there are cases where you know maybe things that are inciting to violence or uh, or things or, or protecting our children from certain types of content is one thing. But generally, I, I'm of the view that that, that these these things should be available. It's a free speech. Uh, you know, we have a free speech in our society. No matter how much we might not like that speech, I think it's important that it's available. Uh, I think it's kind of disconcerting for me that a lot of times it seems like on college campuses, which used to be, you know, bastions of free thinking, uh, are now seems like they're really kind of clamping down because they don't want anybody to be offended. They're they're, they're not letting anybody come to say anything at these at some of these um, to give speeches that are anywhere near controversial, even if you don't agree with them, it, it seems like we do, we need to be able to allow these things to come out that the key I think would be transparency and then, and having some way of grading this content to its factual content. It's one thing to say that it's, it's something you disagree with, you know, if it's opinion you disagree with, it's another that they're actually trying to spread lies. Yeah. Well, um, let me take you to a slightly different orientation to what you just said. Um, one of the things that uh, I'm working on right now in my research at, at Oxford is something for which I've coined the phrase quantum law. Uh, how will we govern humankind in an age of quantum computing that can make complicated decisions within five one thousandths of a second? Mm. Now, that's the time it takes for uh, an electron to pulse, which is like blinking your eyes 200 times in a second. <laughs> And yet, that's how fast you know, computing can work. Um, and in my mind, uh, we are going to get to a point where we can have the machines doing the filtering to our criteria. That's going to take time. And it's going to require us writing the rules that we want to apply to, as our expression of the filters of what we want to see. Um, uh, very precise and to have the audit mechanisms in place as the information comes across the feed, we can score its trustworthiness uh, on the fly. And, mm. and quantum computing gives us that potential uh, to do those things that would otherwise happen between our ears <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a real-time scenario that's, that's uh, impressive. What we discussed earlier, though, is that when we begin to use those filters, we're actually enriching the segregation that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And, and that's going to be the balance for all of us. Um, I, I will, on occasion, turn on Fox News as a liberal just to see what they're saying. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating to see the different perspectives that are out there. But I do it more of a, as an educational curiosity than it is um, yeah. something else. But you, know, you said, can we count the number of facts? Well, we can right, as a way of filtering it. But we have to have the rules for what constitutes a fact. Uh, you know, Einstein's great thought experiment was a train is moving at 60 miles an hour. Uh, there's a person standing by the side of the road and someone in a car moving at the same rate of speed. To the person in the car, the train's not moving. To the person on the side of the road, the train's moving 60 miles an hour, which is the fact. Mm. And so we all have a relativistic view of that that will make that rules process challenging. The important thing is to have, I think, the authors that, and the networks uh, generating the transparency into who are the sources yeah. and providing the criteria information that people want to rely on and then let them make their own choices.
And it's time for one last break before we finish our interview with Jeffrey. And before I tell you how to win a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, it's got well over 100 tips with step-by-step instructions and pictures and all the whys and wherefores of why and how to protect your computers and your family and your mobile devices, all that sort of stuff. Stay tuned and I'll let you know how to win a free copy. We are one of the fastest growing podcasts and talk radio networks in the world. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We stand proudly with the men and women who serve in our armed forces and our law enforcement heroes. Thank you for being part of our family. And we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. So you brought up uh, an interesting point with science, and this is something else that that's, seems to be a more recent phenomenon, and that is it almost seems to me that people are shunning science in the scientific process. It, it, I still don't understand why people cannot accept climate change, for example, uh, or there are people, for some reason, Earth being flat is a phenomenon now, <laughs> where, 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 where that's a thing, or it didn't used to be. Of course, back in the day, it was, did we really land on the moon? So it, um, yeah, Buzz Aldrin got 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 into an altercation uh, last week with somebody who was making a similar statement that the entire Apollo uh, program had been fake. <laughs> so uh, okay, so Mr. Digital Trust guy, how, science is supposed to be the last bastion of trust. These are it, there's it's peer reviewed. It's people have to back up their experiments by someone else repeating those experiments, and yet this 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 process that has been around for so long that it's supposed to guarantee well to, to the extent that science can that this is what we believe to be the current truth is being shunned and, and why is that it, do you have any notion of why that is is there anything we could do to reinstate science and reasoning as as the basis for trust um i think the the last few words you just said are the key uh reinstate reasoning as the basis of trust right uh, reasoning is inherently evidence-based uh, it is a matter of having rules and a matter of finding information and seeing whether the information lines up to those rules. Uh, we're seeing today's buzzwords be evidence-based management, evidence-based medicine, uh, same concept. Um, today, people are placing their trust in sources of information that frankly do not deserve to be trusted. Uh, but the problem is that the effort of reasoning to that conclusion is difficult. Uh, it requires work, and we probably are all a little bit tempted to not go to that effort. Uh, again, that's sort of what the bad actors are exploiting in the content they generate. Um, as we've mentioned earlier, when they're in the classroom and teachers are teaching us what fake news is, they're actually introducing critical reasoning. That's probably where it has to reinstate itself. Uh, you know. Next, this generation and next generation students graduating with the expectation that they will have a quality of life that is superior because they are asking good questions. Um, and, uh, you know, my career has been an unexpected one. Uh, you know, I started as a lawyer for Victoria's Secret, as we talked <laughs> about in the last webcast, and now I'm teaching at the University of Oxford. Uh, some sort of roast back in the late 1990s for me, where I was the target. Um, someone walked up to the microphone in an effort to compliment me. He said only uh, one thing. He said, Jeffrey, 
you ask good questions. That's and, a high compliment. And he walked away. And that was the whole thing. And I think that's probably what my, my response is. We just have to be willing to ask the questions. And that's how we will reason to a higher level of trust. The other thing, that I'd like one last topic I'd like to go before we go, and that is that in our as technology advances, there are so many things that we can reproduce today. Look at all the the, the Marvel action movies that we see. It, it used to be back in the day. If you look at some of the the, the original uh, superhero movies, they were laughable by today's standards. You could easily see when things were someone was not really flying or when they weren't really shooting web out of their wrists or what, you know, today their CGI has gotten so good. You really, you really cannot tell the untrained eye certainly cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality. And of course we, we expect that in movies. We love that about our movies today, but I've also seen tools recently that allowed someone to take, you know, one or two minute samples from somebody's speech patterns and then create new speech from someone else's voice. In this particular case, it was Barack Obama saying things he did not say, at least not in the order that he originally yeah. said them. Sample someone's voice uh, and regenerate audio that sounds very lifelike. You could still hear it today, but it won't be long and you will not be able to tell the difference. I also saw another tool that allowed you to take video of someone speaking and then through some computer algorithms, regenerate new video of them saying things that they weren't saying originally either. So... it. We ought, we're certainly to the point now where we can't trust anything we see or hear, even if it's digital. What are, what are we now? What are we supposed to do? Well, I understand Costa Rica has a very liberal policy <laughs> on immigration. Um, there was even a story to reaffirm your point in the Washington Post this morning uh, about the uh, about alteration of photographs, yeah. and that you know they were they actually gave you uh, online a set of five different photographs with matching photos to see if you could tell which was real and which one had been altered, right? And the reality is that we haven't developed the criteria for evaluating those photos with the level of granularity that the bad actors leverage in order to create a deceptive image. Uh, we forget that creating fake content is old news. <laughs> Uh, it goes back to uh, couriers carrying false messages about troop movement in the Roman times. Uh, the Portuguese were famous for the quality of the maps that they would create. They were fictitious images of the New World, and many a Spanish galleon sailed to its death in reliance <laughs> upon the Portuguese maps, which were created to be stolen by the Spanish. Huh. Um, and so, and and in the 1940s, uh, during World War II, the British were brilliantly successful in fooling the German cameras that were flying overhead as reconnaissance planes by creating green fields of, of, you know, of wheat that were actually underneath the tarps were all the equipment that was there, and then creating images of the equipment that were just built of cardboard in, in a right. location that was not consistent. So right. we've always been in the business of deception. <laughs> we're going to continue to be in that business of deception when the stakes that are at at, at play are worth the investment and loss of reputation if the deception is 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 identified is is revealed is is you know is discovered. Um, I don't think we're going to fix that. What we can fix is the moral climate in which that's acceptable, and that we just kind of laugh at the photoshopping of a voice of an image. Uh, a piece of art, and and we actually take it very seriously. Um, 
we have to learn how to ask better questions. And I think I agree. I think we have to, as a society, decide that we value trust and we value truth and we value authenticity um, and ask, become critical thinkers again. And, yeah. and that, Well, I mean, that's, that's why I wrote my book. That's why I'm privileged enough to be teaching this, the course that I do uh, at Oxford. Um, it's, it, my students literally come from around the world. Um, just two weeks ago, I had students from Argentina. I had one from Sierra Leone. I had one from Nigeria. I had one uh, from Malaysia, uh, a Russian, uh, uh, West, French, Western Europe, Germany, uh, UK, Irish. I mean, there were a lot. Mm -hmm. What was conspicuous over the three years I've been teaching the course is I've only had three Americans. <laughs> and it says a lot to me about the way that that moral awareness, at least in our nation, is yet to develop to the point that it's a critical differentiator. Oh, that, I'm sure that would be an interesting thing for a sociologist or a psychiatrist to figure out what what, what about America that uh, makes us different in that regard, which I'd like to know myself. But well, uh, Maybe we make too much profit from deception. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. You know, it's kind of funny when you look at the back of a cereal box, right? Uh, we used to not have any content disclosures. And there was never any requirements for what we put uh, in sure, there, yes. what it was made of and what the nutrition content was. Right. The UPC code uh, that was on the side used to never be there. And so a lot of the transparency is actually found in what you and I as a technical world would call the metadata, the yes. information about the content. Right. And I think that's where we can actually uh, put a lot of this. And from a technical design point of view, is we can put the disclosures that fuel transparency and that allow the questions to be answered as part of the structure of the content itself. Not necessarily the envelope per se, but a way of sending content along with its history, its providence, its origins, its sources, so that we can make those decisions in a better context. That's, that seems to be the key. Well, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating discussion and, and made it clear to me that things that were new are really just old. It's just a new kind of packaging and do it a different kind of way, but all these same problems have existed for a long period of time. They are, but for us to succeed as a species on this earth, we have to solve them. Otherwise, the structure of this brilliant, wonderful creation of communication that the internet represents will collapse. Well, thank you very much. On those words, we'll uh, end another show. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, we just have a little bit of time left, so I want to get to my tip of the week. And it's really more of an informational thing this week, and I thought it would be perfectly uh, timed with this interview to bring this up. Uh, I told you a while back about a technology called Lyrebird, uh, and that was a technology that researchers came up with that would allow them to sample speech patterns uh, from somebody, anybody. Uh, obviously, somebody famous might, or like, say, the president of the United States. In fact, they used Barack Obama as their test subject. They were able to sample his speech, and obviously there's plenty of examples of it out there and then turn around and make him basically say anything they wanted him to say. It was very creepy. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes back to that so you can check that out again if for some reason you missed it uh, the first time it came around. But now there's even a new version of this, which is, to me, even creepier. And this is they're taking video samples of somebody. And again, they picked Barack Obama. This is a perfect, that's the perfect case to use, right? It, somebody famous um, uh, who is an authority figure that they can all of a sudden take this video samples of somebody saying various things on video and then turn around and make a video 
of that person saying things that they did not say. Now, I'm, I'm sure under the covers, it's all based on little samples of things they actually did say, but they're, they were able to reformat this and with video, not just audio, to create a video of the of President, former President Barack Obama saying things that he didn't say. It's, it's just amazing. At least you have to check it out. So I, I put a link in the show notes. The point of this and the little tip of the week is while you can still look at this today and kind of say, okay, that looks a little off. Something looks funny. We are not far away from the point where you will just, you'll just won't be able to tell. Um, and I'm not here to say that you can no longer trust anything you see or hear. This is a technology that not everyone's going to have yet, but they will. And eventually we're going to get to the point where in the, in the not too distant future, we're really going to have to do some critical thinking and trying to figure out what we trust and what we don't trust, because some of these videos will be able to be doctored. It's going to be a new world, unfortunately. So anyway, don't want to get all tinfoil hat and paranoid on you, but I just I need to let you know that this is the kind of stuff coming down the pike. So anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks again to Jeffrey Ritter for coming back and talking to us about fake news. And uh, one last chance, I'll put the word out again, to send me your stories about backups, whether they be good or bad, some interesting story about a case where maybe you lost a bunch of stuff or almost lost a bunch of stuff from your computers because you either did or did not do a backup like you should. Uh, and I'm going to have an episode coming up soon telling you all about backups, why they're so important, and how easy they are to do today, and how to make sure that you're backing up all your most precious stuff so you don't lose them. Uh, so send me your stories. Uh, I want to hear about them. The most interesting story uh, I will send a free copy, a free digital copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, you can find that on Amazon. It's got over 100 tips in it with step-by-step instructions and pictures in the whole nine yards. And if you send me your most interesting story and I pick that story and read it on the air, you will get a free copy of my book. So send those to Carrie Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. You got about a week or two left. Get those into me right away. And uh, the winner will get a free copy of my book. And that's it for this week, folks. Until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down and stay safe. See you then.